My name is Margaret Toscano. Um, I was excommunicated from the LDS Church in the year 2000 because of my feminist writings. Uh, I was actually threatened in 1993 along with the other September 6th. Um, at this point in my life, all of these years later, I don't really have an interest in getting back into the LDS Church, but I still very much care about Mormonism and about issues that are happening, especially feminist issues in the church. I'm Paul Toscano, I'm a convert to the church. My, my wife is a lifelong member, but I was converted in 1963, and then 30 years later in 1993, I was excommunicated as one of the September 6th, mainly for my views, but I think uh, ostensibly because I, I manifested a certain amount of irritation and disrespect for the church leadership. And uh, I too continue to be interested in Mormonism, we are living in a, in a time of religious turbulence in the world and in the church. Uh, in Mormonism, uh, many people are leaving the church. Uh, other people are retrenching. Uh, other people continue to believe literally things that I think are not true, although I think that Mormonism has a lot to offer in the way of a religion. And uh, so here we are in August of uh, 2014. We've decided to make a few videos where we actually record some of the discussions that Margaret and I have about Mormon issues. So even though, as we said, we're no longer members of the church, I think that Paul and I both agree that there are still valuable things within Mormonism and within the Mormon religion, which really brings us to the central question for our little discussion today, which is why would two intelligent people, I'll just assume that, right, that we're intelligent people, why would two intelligent people who have had such a troubled relationship with a, an institutional organization, why do we still think that there's something valuable in religion? Um, I mean, so many people now are really abandoning religion uh, because of really so many problematic things, authoritarian issues, issues of freedom of speech, issues of uh, social justice, um, you know, so many problems. You could explain some more, Paul. So why would two people like us still think that there's something valuable about religion in spite of the fact that we see very clearly and have experienced the problems? Um, so in fact, maybe we could also say that historically, the two big issues, there's two big arguments against religion, which I think explain why a lot of people are leaving the LDS Church today, are claims of science. You know, that science in some ways seems to be a proof that, you know, religious claims are not true. And the other big argument uh, has to do with history, the fact that some of the stories that religions tell, if you actually dig into the history, there are a lot of flaws in that. So those have been the two big arguments, and they're still very powerful. I mean, this has been going on for centuries, right? And yet these are still two reasons that people are giving for you know, leaving religion. I think that when people uh, have had a soured experience of religion, they, they, they frankly have every reason to leave. Yeah, me too. I don't want to encourage anybody to stay if they want to leave. Right. The second thing is if, uh, if people, you know, it's a very rational reason to leave religion if you are convicted by science or history, uh, perfectly rational reasons for leaving Mormonism or any other religion. And I have no judgment for people who do that. In fact, I have very little judgment for people who take whatever course they have. 
But I do feel that today there are a lot of people leaving Mormonism and other religions and, and going into agnosticism or atheism, you know, taking up that position. And I think they do so maybe they go from fundamentalist beliefs in religion to fundamentalist non-belief without exploring the middle ground. And I, I think one of the ways you begin to explore this middle ground is by turning the searchlight of criticism on science and on history. Because from my perspective, you know, we, we live in a cosmos, we are told by experts in this field, mm -hmm. uh, a cosmos of which we only have access to five, four or five percent. Only four or five percent of the known universe, of the universe, fits into the electromagnetic spectrum so that it can be analyzed or explored, which means that 94, 95 percent of the universe or the cosmos is beyond, beyond our reach. And so I, I'm, I think it's premature to just dump the possibility of a supernature simply because we don't know enough about the cosmos. I'm not saying uh, people shouldn't do that. That's, that's their own judgment. I just think that it's premature. So the other, you, let me finish. Okay. But the other thing I want to say is that, the, that uh, uh, when people do this, they're not turning the searchlight of criticism on science and history itself. My feeling is that we have a paucity of scientific and historical facts. I know that from one point of view there's an abundance of it, but in reality science is very young and what it does is it tends to privilege the rational over the intuitive. So let me interrupt here, Paul, because of course the, the main argument or the main support on the uh, side of science is the practical argument. I mean, look what science has done. I mean, we have computers, right? We have computers, we've you know, gone to the moon, we have all of this technology, which is very strong, you know, we have medicine and all of this, so we have very strong proof that science works. Um, and I would also argue that it seems to me that not only do we have this kind of dichotomy sometimes between, you know, you're either going to be a naive believer and you just accept everything that religion tells you and then you flip over to the other side and you're just going to be a complete believer in science and atheism without examining it, right? And for the same that, reason they believe in history. They right. believe in history because you can point to things, artifacts, documents, uh, you know, you can dig around in the ground and find proof of civilizations and cultures. Science is always measuring things. This is the very point I think that people don't realize is that because you can measure a mirage, you can measure an illusion, you can take all of the facts that you've got on the table and you construct from these facts a probable story. And the more facts you add to that, the more you have to change the story in order to keep it from being probable because it has to answer the existing facts. The same is true with history. Uh, if you have a little bit about you know, Socrates, the more you have about him, uh, you know about him, the more writings of his you can find and study, if there were any, you could get a better story of Socrates. What we're dealing with here is story. Now science measures and the facts are indisputable. You know, when the electron hits the, f the film, it leaves a spray of energies and they can be measured and scientists know how to do that. And that gives us facts. But you have to collect these facts into a story. Evolution is a story, could be true, could be false, I don't know. But it is a great story and it seems to answer the facts. Same thing with uh, the equations in quantum physics or Newtonian physics. There are the facts and they create a story. The Big Bang is a story. Could it be disputed? Sure, other facts could come in and change our picture. Well, but what these things do not do is they do not answer 
foundational questions of meaning and purpose, the religious question is why, not how or how much or what, you know, what it is in the sense of measurement. Science measures, but religion asks the larger question of how do we know what we know, what was the beginning, what is the end, what is purpose, and religion, therefore, I don't think is going to go away, although it can become, uh, it can sour. Well, definitely. And in, in terms of one of my specialties, which is how myth, M-Y-T-H, functions in culture, there was this old belief that myth, of course, was simply the precursor to science. That, you know, before the advent of, what, 600 B.C., when you began to have scientific explorations in terms of the pre-Socratic natural philosophers, that before that time, uh, people used myth to explain the natural world. So you had the story of Demeter and Persephone to explain the seasons, and therefore, as soon as you understood, you know, the rotation of the earth and the whole idea of it on its axis and so forth, you had scientific naturalistic explanations, then there was no more need for myth because of course then myth could be done away with when we had the true knowledge. But historically, that's not what has happened. The truth of it is, is that in the present world, we have both scientific explanations of things, but myths are still powerful. And I would argue the reason they are still powerful is that in fact, they do what you're talking about. That really, if you look at these old stories, they're often more interested in religious questions than they are with the naturalistic questions. So the story of Demeter and Persephone, I would say, is more interested in the question of, as mortals, how should we deal with death? It's a story of the idea that we all die and the issue, the question of is there an afterlife and is there any hope for humans in an afterlife? It's more concerned with that question than it is with explaining about the naturalistic world. Why on a physical, scientific level do we have the seasons? That's not the question that the myth makers were interested in. They were interested in the cycle of death and rebirth let and me, what that me, could mean let, for mortals. Let me talk about then that same idea with respect to the Genesis story. Okay. In my view, the Genesis story is not about why or how God created life on earth, because that is all backdrop. I mean, the whole creation story is backdrop to the dialogical encounter of God, Adam, Eve, and Satan, and the question that's being dealt with there in this dialogue, in this dramatic presentation in Genesis, is why would immortals introduce death into what was an immortal world? So the question there is, why would God create death? And of course, the answer to that question is in all the rest of the books of the Bible, where you, where you watch those wacky humans doing all of the strange things that they do, many of which are deplorable, and then it justifies why God pronounced death on the human race, because of, look at the rest of the books of the Bible and what it tells you about what we're like. And then, of course, comes the, the Messianic texts in the New Testament, which show why God would reverse the death uh, uh, sentence because he, he loves us more than he hates our sins and he's willing to lay down his sovereignty. We can talk about it, that another time. But here's a different way of interpreting the myth. Now, let me say one final thing. If I use an analogy to cooking, 
cake, okay. which I had never been able to do. <laughs> cooking, cooking, not make analogies. Yeah, cooking. <laughs> I can't cook. Uh, I cooked, but it all goes it, into the garbage disposal true. immediately. It's true. So, but if when you're cooking, it, the, one of the most important features of any, any cuisine, any dish, is the herbs and spices that go into it to flavor it. And I, I analogize the myths of a culture to that kind of those herbs and spices which flavor the culture. They 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 give flavor to the culture, in spite of the fact that um, that uh, those same ingredients, the onions, the carrots, the the, the meat, whatever that goes the into salt. the stew, the salt, <laughs> that may go into every dish, no matter it's done in India or China or America or England or 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 Africa, wherever it is, South America. You you, you put the same kinds of things, but how you flavor it makes the difference between one culture and another. And the flavoring is, is the mythology. So we, the, the flavor, you're saying the flavoring is actually where the difference is. Yeah, the flavoring is it where the difference like is. And the reason why, for example, Mexico is different from the United States, there are many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that in America, we, we drew our mythologies from Britain. And, and there was a book about this. And the this. Greeks and the Romans. And, well, well, beyond that, to the Greeks yeah. of Europe. Whereas, uh, but uh, South America, also Europe, but through the Hispanic cultures and the Southern cultures, we more of the Northern cultures. Other, other, other uh, cultures are flavored by the African cultures more. We have that in our country. Uh, India, uh, other countries have these different things. And it's very important to try to reach back and see the source. So religion, the myths, which often religion is thought of as a myth, in They're the very, negative sense. In the right? negative sense, it's, it's mm -hmm. not a true story. But in many ways, the story is truer than true because it, it has a truth to it that infuses itself, like spices do in a dish. It infuses itself into the culture and informs the culture. It becomes kind of like the glasses through which the people of that culture see the world. And if they never look at their own glasses and examine them, they, it's like that's what it means not to examine your own myths. So I think myths are very important, equally important with history and science. Well, and of course, Joseph Campbell uh, really made this idea popular uh, in the 1980s. Oh, did he? I thought it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> no. In, in uh, with his series on uh, you know the power of myth and mm -hmm. and so forth, and he really makes the argument that myth is the uh, is the mechanism for understanding the human psyche and that it is about how we humans do create meaning for ourselves in the world. But I think that it, and, and I mean, I totally am convinced by that idea that as human beings, we need stories. And in fact, I would argue that we need stories as much as we need food. That just as we need food to keep food and drink, to keep our bodies alive, that I believe that we need stories, which are really is what myths are, right? Myths are significant stories for individuals and cultures which help them understand who they are, what their identity is, and how they fit in with the larger world. Well, so I totally agree with you. We need those stories. Well, how they does this like, relate to Mormonism? Then? Well, I, I, before we get back to Mormonism, though, I think we have to deal with the question of, of truth again, because people will say, well, fine, you know, okay, I admit we need stories you know, these are important for us, but religion claims that stories are true in a more ultimate sense. Now, I would say they're true in an ultimate sense in terms of explaining who we are as humans, but religion will almost always claim 
that these stories are true in relationship to the existence of the supernatural or the existence of God or the truth claims of any one religion. So maybe this gets to your issue of Mormonism mm -hmm. because of course Mormonism has used, I mean it claims both the Bible but it also claims Joseph Smith as the basis for authority for this religion. So, you know, even though on one level we can argue, well, there's just something valuable about stories and we don't have to decide whether they're true or false because really they're just mechanisms for exploration, not just exploration, but for us creating a framework for ourselves to have any kind of existence within this kind of scary naturalistic world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's good enough on one level. But if we're talking religion, you can't help but get back to that more fundamental question. Well, let's get so back I to it. So I don't know, I mean, how do you deal with that, Paul? Well, uh, I mean, uh, both of us have, you know, we've had crises of faith one after another in terms of our life, and yet I don't totally give up the idea that there might be some kind of divine power or supernatural. I, I would describe myself as a, I don't know whether I would say I'm a doubting believer or a believing agnostic. <laughs> I'm kind of both of those things. But I even ask with myself, you know, why, in spite of all my doubts and my cynicism, I don't completely give up on the idea that there could be some kind of a, an afterlife of supernatural power, which for me actually is as frightening as it is hopeful. Uh, you know, sometimes I just wish they were oblivion. Right? Oblivion sounds pretty good. Um, but I think you, we do have to deal with that. Before we talk about the power of stories and I think what within Mormonism we still think are good stories. But I don't know, how do you deal with that deeper question about you know, the reality of, of the supernatural or the reality of God? Does it matter? I think that question matters in spite of the fact that I also think stories have value in and of themselves. Well, the way I deal with it is because I face the fact that science, history, and the whole of human knowledge does not tell us the truth about reality. It's not only religion that's deficient, but science is deficient and history is deficient. I recognize that, like I said earlier, we have a paucity of scientific information, we have a paucity uh, of historical information, and that therefore uh, none of our mechanisms for discovering truth has yielded the truth. We can find facts, we can measure things, we can pile up our measurements, and we can pile up the documents and the artifacts, but, and we can come to a probable story, but it, it's constantly changing under our hand. And uh, frankly, uh, none of these, if you, if you focus the critical light on any of our methodologies, uh, we come up short. And therefore, I think we just have to keep our minds open and be hopeful in a way. So like the resurrection, if, if the question is, was Jesus resurrected from the dead? Because the whole of Christianity rests on that uh, claim. Well, it's an absurd claim. It's totally irrational. That doesn't mean it didn't happen because irrationality is basically, in other words, uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton made this point in the book Orthodoxy. He said, if, if pussy willows dropped kittens every spring, we would consider it a natural law. They would scamper off into the, into the woods and we would say, fine. But they don't. And if they did, it would be considered a miracle. Well, 
resurrections don't happen, and so one resurrection is a miracle. If a resurrection happened every 10,000 years, it would probably not be considered a miracle. It would become the subject of regulation and taxation. I can, I can tell you, it would. If cultures last long enough for a 10,000 year cycle. Well, exactly, and we're still in a 10,000 year cycle, so we don't know whether a resurrection happens every 10,000 years. That's the thing about science that we don't, it's gotta be repeatable, verifiable, and demonstrable measurable by peers who re reproduce the experiment, that's a form of scientific evidence. The other, the other evidence is, is uh, I, I'm trying to answer your question. I know, I and, want to come back with another example, okay. but you go ahead. Well, because I think this is important. So you're talking about, you know, how do you prove something naturalistically? So to me, it's interesting as a person who looks at the history of cultures, you know, I'm a professor of humanities, and study the ancient Greeks and Romans. And I've looked at a lot of different cultures. And there are accounts in every culture of people either claiming to see ghosts, or in other words, departed dead. I mean, that's a very common phenomenon. In fact, that's probably more common than anybody recording a mystical vision of God. But almost every culture will have people talking about depart people who have died coming back and them seeing apparitions. You also have people who have, but less common than apparitions of the dead, they will talk about encountering, you know, they have some kind of mystical experience of the divine. So you can find those. I mean, I think historically you can show that people have had that belief well, let me interrupt you. Know, okay, you. but, okay, but, but let me, let me just you. finish my one sentence, say, okay? You can which say is the same about have... UFOs. No, that's true. You can. Yeah. There's so, lots of uh, those. But my point is, the question I was then going to go throw back to you and let you have your chance to say something, yes. is that, um. you know, you can find that. I mean, historically, that I think is pretty easy to show that people believe that they've had those experiences. Now, the fact that you can show historically that people have believed that, that's not the same thing as naturalistic, proving from a naturalistic point of view that they have happened. Although I think it's very crucial evidence not to ignore that that has happened from a long time in history and still happens, and why people have those experiences, I'm not sure we can explain that. But we throw that into the mix of things, right? I mean, naturalistically, can you make can you record in front of the camera like we're doing right now, um, you know, the appearance of apparitions? They tried that, by the way, in the 19th and 20th century, right? To do those kinds of experiments. Um, they mostly have been shown to be a hoax, right? But you can try it, and yet people claim that they've had these experiences. And I say, who cares? Because it's not proof of anything. It's just proof that human beings tend to have these experiences, whether they are evidence of reality or evidence of something wrong in the human psyche or, or the nervous simply system, a or simply phenomenal. pattern of belief. Right. It's my point is the point that I was making before you uh, took us down that road. If I can find where I was, was <laughs> the point that if you turn the critical eye of science on itself and the critical eye of history on itself, if you do metacriticism or self-criticism as a discipline, you realize that neither not science nor history nor, nor sociology nor any of the disciplines can actually help us to understand an answer to the, the, the religious question of why we're here, where we're going, what is the meaning of 
human life, the existential questions, right? Right. So, so to to abandon religion because it doesn't, it cannot, it prove its claims through scientific, historical, or other methodology, is I think just simply short-sighted. I think you have to approach it from a very different point of view. Once you understand that religion is dealing in stories, stories to help us fill in the blanks on mysteries, I think the, the answer that you have to come to about whether you stay in a religion or stick with a religion or abandon a religion or give up on religion altogether is to ask yourself the question of, does this story help me as a person, help, help this group as a, as a group and the world as the whole world be better? It becomes really not so much, it's, it's, it's really a beyond an ethical question. It isn't about morality. It's about the larger arc of how does this myth help me to divine the power structures I believe in? How does it help me to think about people that are not like me? Is, is a religion that believes in purity by excluding scapegoats worse or better than a religion that tries to bring people together? Is, 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 take the Book of Mormon story, because I want to get to Mormonism, or else we'll okay. never get to it. Yeah, let's get to Mormonism. The Mormon, the Mormon story has this idea, presents the idea that, Joseph Smith presented the idea that the supernatural and the natural are equally valuable, that male and female are, are really, at bottom, equally valuable, that, that the, the uh, spiritual world and the physical world are equally, they all have equal dignity before God that God did not create the material universe so they could flush it, but that it has equal value with the supernatural, the natural and the net, uh, and the supernatural. So if we believe that, then there's this tendency to think that, okay, we ought to be able to prove Mormonism is true by natural means. Let's find the plates. Let's go down to South America or down to, you know, the Creole Indians. Or to Missouri. <laughs> or to Missouri or up, up north with the Hopewell Indians. And let's dig around until we can find Nephi's shoes. That will help us because if we can prove Nephi's shoes, he had them written on there because his mom wrote them on when he sent them to school so his shoes didn't get mixed up with everybody else's shoes. We can prove that the Book of Mormon is true. And this is, the, this is, the, this is nonsensical. Because even if you had the plates and the Urim and Thummim and it was working and 20 academics who translated it and it turns out to be more or less the Book of Mormon story, it would not prove Jesus appeared to the Nephites or that he was really uh, God or that he wasn't a UFO extraterrestrial. It doesn't prove the religion. But it, it, it increases the probabilities. It, it may prove Joseph Smith was a fraud, not a that fraud. That was my question. Yeah. Does it prove that Joseph Smith right, was lying? Right, but that proof is because people want to base their religious beliefs on an authority. The reason why we don't want Joseph Smith to be a fraud is because we want to be able to rely on him as an authority for our religious beliefs. And that is the one thing about which God has made himself certain. Herself. You, her, exactly, herself certain. I concede that point. Okay. Herself certain is that you may not rely on your religious belief, on any authority other than the authority of your own judgment. That is the heart and soul of the Christian belief and of the Jewish belief, and I believe ultimately of the Islamic belief and all other beliefs that embody the truth. You cannot abdicate your judgment to the judgment of religious leaders or to a text you have to make that judgment on your own. You have to analyze that story. You have to either reject or accept that story for whatever reason. 
And I think some people reject religion for the right reasons, and other people accept religion for the right reasons, and also people reject and accept religion for the wrong reasons. It's the reasons for which you accept or reject this story that is the heart of the judgment. But of course, I mean, if you look at religions historically, everybody has wanted to claim some kind of authority. Over other not, people. Well, well, that too. But I'm thinking in terms of the issue of how to accept anything, right? I mean, there's religious authority, there's the authority of text, there's the authority of naturalistic evidence. I mean, quite frankly, so much of science, I get really frustrated with science because I'm a very smart, educated person, but I don't understand the explanations about the Big Bang. And yet I'm somehow expected that if I'm smart, I should just accept the Big Bang is true because you know scientists that know more than I do have told me it's true. That bothers me. You know, I mean, why can't you explain it so a person like me understands it and can decide for myself whether it's true or false? Well, right? Einstein and, and, said that. He said if you can't explain your scientific positions so that a, a, a layperson can understand them, you probably don't understand them very well yourself. Well, as a teacher, I sort of believe that, right? I think yeah. you should be able to explain things, which is not the same as understanding all the nuances and the meaning of it. Yeah. But there is something there that we should be able to explain. But it seems to me like that, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, from my perspective, I think that we have to use our own judgment. You know, this is a value that both you and I agree with that we will say, um, you know, it's important that each person use their own judgment and not simply abdicate, you know, to whether it's the president of a church or the, uh, you know, some big teacher at the university or to whomever, that I think both you and I would say that we have the value of, you know, personal responsibility and examining issues for ourselves. But, you know, that's very much a value that comes out of, you know, the 20th century and the experiences that you and I have had where we've seen the problems with organizations that are demanding obedience on the basis of authority. Um, but then the issue is, well, if you give up the sense of authority and you're, ex and you're saying, well, I'm going to go on my own judgment, it's not as though that answers all of the problems. I mean, maybe it solves one issue, but it brings up others. It does, I but... I mean, is there anything I reliable that we can go on, and maybe we don't have to. I mean, you were claiming that as well. Maybe if there is a God, maybe God doesn't want us to have that kind of certainty. But why? I mean, what would be the benefit of not having certainty? I'll tell you the benefit of not having certainty. Because if you have certainty, you're tempted to impose it on others. That's true enough. And the other reason why certainty is not a great, it's faith, not certainty, that's the foundation of the Christian religion, is because uh, if you have certainty, not only is the t temptation to impose it on others, it blocks further exploration. I'm not saying that a person should exercise their judgment in a vacuum, not listen to their leaders, not, not pay attention to scientific evidence. Or to historical evidence. Or whatever. It doesn't right? matter. They should be, but who wants to do this? This is really hard. It is hard. This is why in the Brothers Karma's Offer, wherever it is in that book, where where the Jesus is being uh, the Grand Inquisitor, the Grand the Inquisitor, famous Grand Inquisitor, right? Inquisitor. He says, you, you're, you, the, "The Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, your religion is too hard. We had to replace it with bread and circuses and all these other things. You want people to think. You want people to kind of pull themselves out of their 
quagmire and walk on the water like you did. We're not going to do that. Well, These people need bread and circuses, and we're going to give it to them. And I say, if people are exhausted and, and despondent, and they don't have the inclination to do this, and they just want to have a hedonistic life and die, you know, fine, if they can do as little harm as possible, they're going to probably be okay. But that is not what religion is about. Religion is about pulling yourself out of the con comfortable containment of your envelope, pressing against your own mythologies, and trying to get to something better. And I think that was what, frankly, I believe that that was what Joseph Smith was himself doing, and in a sense, was calling others to do. And I think his life, which was not a perfect life by any means, he made a lot of mistakes. That's what's going to happen when you do that. And people will judge you for it. And your name will be known for good or ill, maybe not among all nations, but certainly among the people that know you. It's a very dangerous road. But that is what religion is about. And unless people are willing to do this, they're really going to wind up abdicating their judgment to the judgment of some kind of authority, and they're not going to be able to make a judgment about religion based upon whether the entire narrative arc of that religion leads to better betterness for everybody or just for the few. I think this is what why people I don't think should immediately abandon religion. Well, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm saying people I can't. In other words, you think that it's it's a mistake to simply do it as a knee-jerk reaction. Correct. I see bad things in religion, therefore all religion, everything in religion, you know, not just organizations, but everything about religion is bad, is really an un, un you know, it's not a very intelligent position. Take slavery. Slavery was caused by people misinterpreting Genesis, but the abolition of slavery was caused by people uh, reading the New Testament. I mean, you've got people who want to post the Ten Commandments. I don't know why. They don't seem to ever want to post the Beatitudes, but post the Beatitudes on the school with the Ten Commandments, put the Beatitudes. I, I, or put the, the Hindu version of this. It's very difficult for people not to want to claim religion as an authority for imposing their views and their agenda on others. This is the part about it that I find bad. Well, I think that most intelligent people do find that part of it bad. Um, maybe just slightly takes us into a different direction. But even what you just said, where you're saying that, that slavery was caused by people using Genesis, I mean, this is a typical argument against religion, right? I mean, the two main arguments against religion are either that we can't prove it from a scientific or historical point of view, and then we look at the effects of it. Yes. And both of them have been used by the new atheists. So they will say, well, religion is bad because religion causes people to you know, use violence or to do this, and they'll bring up issues of like hell. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me a rather circular argument again, mm -hmm. in terms of if we're really being intellectually rigorous, if you don't believe that there's any truth to religion, that there's no divine authority or no revelation, then to say that religion is responsible for all the, the evils in the world seems to me a bad argument because human beings created religion, therefore 
it's not religion that has created these bad things, but the humans behind them. Right. And so even an, a topic that I've explored a lot, so religion, one of the things that it's blamed for is that it creates the notion of hell, right? Yeah. Where we're going to punish anybody who's not part of our religion forever in this endless torment. And certainly that idea has been there in many religions, not just Christianity, it's in Islam, it's in Buddhism, by the way. Buddhism has many thousand layers of hell. Of course, you can't eventually get out. Um, on the other hand, historically, if you look at the development of hell, um, it's not necessarily religions who have, that have solely created hell. I mean, if you look at the earliest evidence that we have, the belief was that there was an afterlife, but that it was sort of a neutral place. It was like a storage house for the dead. And the, the sort of really notion of, of hell as a punishment probably starts more like in about 600 BC, where you have philosophy and wisdom traditions, and they're trying to solve a human problem, which is the problem of how do we create the incentive for people to do good rather than bad. To act in other than their own self-interest. Exactly. Right. And, you know, so for example, with Plato, I mean, Plato who lives like in about 400 BC, in the, in the ancient Greek world, there wasn't a real strong belief in afterlife punishment. I mean, you had some there, but mostly it was just like there's the afterlife and you know, who knows whether it's better or worse than what we have now. I mean, it seems better to be alive than dead, right? But you have Plato who's very concerned about creating a moral society. And he has a, a myth that he creates about afterlife punishment, but the whole purpose of it is he believes in reincarnation to try to make people better. My point is that to simply blame religion for the creation of hell you know, is, is really, an, it, it's not an educated position. And certainly it's a circular argument if you're arguing that there is no real, you know, any religious truth but humans create it. So to me, you know, to just simply blame religion for all evil in the world, rather than looking at a, more, a, a larger picture about why human beings do the things that they do, and if we're interested in creating a better society, you know, blaming religion as a scapegoat is not really helpful. Let me see. Because it's not dealing with the underlying problems that human beings have had to deal with in the course of history. A point well taken. Okay. We thank have you. to wrap up. Okay. Let's now do let it. me let me say one final thing. There was a story in the Apocrypha of Abraham about Abraham's father Terah, who used to say, "Would that I had an idol that would allow me to take that man's goods." This is the heart of religion that's the black heart of religion. Would that I had a creed, a structure, an institution, leaders, an ethic, whatever the hell it is, that will allow me to take that man's goods, to dominate that group, to allow me to preside in my family like a tyrant. That is, idolatry is the problem with religion, but it's not only theistic religions that can turn into idolatries. But secular religions can turn into idolatries, as was proven by the Nazis and the communists and, and various other secular you know, political uh, movements. 
It can be done by anti-feminists and feminists. It can be done by those who believed in women's suffrage and those who didn't, those who believed in slavery and those who didn't. You can idolaterize, I suppose, I don't know what word I mean, but you can make into an idol any religious belief. And so the first thing you have to do is kind of sort through that. But you're right, blaming religion rather than human beings who are self-interested, it is one of the reasons why, but that's why I say, in my view, if people have a rational basis or some soured religious experience and they got to get out of it because it's a trap for them, out, get out. But on the other hand, I think it's intellectually, it's, it's intellectually unfair to, to simply demonize religion any more than anything else is because it's, these are human ideas and they have to be dealt with with intelligence. Again, it, it isn't proof that there's no supernatural because it can't be proven naturalistically. That's, and you cannot, you cannot prove the non-existence of God because that is just outside the ability of proof. So my feeling is that we have to judge the religious stories and the myths by spending more time thinking about them and seeing the effect that they have. And so I wanted to, I, I kind of, I'm the one who kind of set the agenda for these discussions and I dragged Margaret into it, but I wanted to have the first one of these to where we had a discussion about myth and history, science and religion, and, and a little bit touching on epistemology, how do we know what we know and how do we prove what we believe as the foundation for maybe a couple of other discussions. Which I think is a good idea. And of course, uh, the scholar in me wants to say, well, we by no means settled any of these questions, right? But for me, the purpose of this, these discussions are in fact the purposes, the purpose is to open up, the, open up the question more. Because what I see happening um, in discussions that I'm a part of is this simplistic notion of either, you know, we've got to support religion and it's good, or we're going to, you know, denounce it as bad. And it's sort of like this polarization that I think is not helpful for human beings creating any kind of productive uh, community where we can deal with differences. May I and certainly, religion is not going away. I mean, the Enlightenment philosophers hoped that you know, if we just educated everybody, we could kind of get rid of you know, all the superstitious religious beliefs. But religion and myth are not going away. And so from my perspective, if we can have more intelligent discussions that are not just simply a polarization of you know, the, the two extremes, that we're moving in a positive direction. Exactly. So here we are, <laughs> wrapping up. Remember folks, you can, uh, uh, we want to promote religious argument and discussion among spouses in Mormon households. That's really what we're after. Right? <laughs> That's, indeed, indeed. That's and it. and we have not at all demonstrated yet the fullness to which you and I can argue. In fact, I can't believe Paul that we agreed so much. Yeah. Because usually we end up yelling at each other, which is very ironic, seeing that we usually agree on the basic premise, and yet our usual methodology right. is extremely different. All right, let's stop talking okay. so we can shut up. <laughs>